Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I want to warn you about something that sadly has become so very common. Text message scams. I continue receiving messages supposedly from companies I do business with that are fake. When should you click? When should you delete? I'm going to tell you. Also, I often hear from generous listeners who want to gift money to a family member, but you don't know how to do it. There's a great way to do this without messing up anybody's taxes. So, a couple of things on text messaging. One is it's become very common because it costs nothing for predictive programs that people have on computers to send out blast text messages. And they will come typically from your own area code or one near you. And they'll have a very simple thing like, hey, or just wanted to check on you, see how you're doing, whatever. And you don't recognize the number. Do you click on it? What if it says, Bill, I really need to talk to you about your illness or Bill so-and-so's hurt or Jane blah, blah, blah has happened. And so you may as a good Samaritan think, "Uh uh-oh, they've texted the wrong person. Somebody needs this information right away and you click on it or any other thing like that. These are just prospectors trying to scam you in some way. And if somebody has inadvertently texted the wrong party, well, If it's a true urgent emergency, they're going to keep trying to reach them. You don't need to be the fish with the hook and mouth for that. And then with the text message scams from companies, people used to get them from a very narrow market. It would be someone pretexting that they were from your bank or credit card company or whatever, and they would say, um... There's possible fraud on your account, however they would word it. Today, it's all different kinds of things. One of the hot scams of the moment with texting, believe it or not, is where you get a fake message from an airline saying that your flight has been canceled. And they can send out these by the millions, so eventually they're going to hit people who have a ticket booked on whatever airline. And so people will then respond to that text or click on a link in it and not realize that they're connecting themselves to a scammer. Uh, You know, the bank thing where they say, did you authorize this charge for blah, blah, blah? I think people have gotten that enough that that's solid. But who would think a criminal would come up with a pretext scam where they'd be texting you about a supposed flight cancellation? So what are they trying to get from you eventually? They're trying to get to your personal information 
and it depends on how trusting you are, how many of their questions you answer till you've given up information that can be used against you or to steal money from you. So with text messages, here's my rule. First of all, I got the UFO one from somebody supposedly trying to contact me. And there's no information that I know that sender, that number, anything like that. I do not open that. Just don't open it. I use an Android. It's really easy on an Android to click out of that. Second thing, with anything like a notice from a utility company, an airline, a bank, a credit card company, whatever it is, it could be legit, right? Okay, so you get something saying there's an issue with your bank account, your utility is going to be shut off, whatever it is. Go outside of that message that's been sent. Go to your web browser on that phone or on a laptop. Go sign into your account or use the app you have on your phone for whatever service that is. Sign in and you will see whether or not there is an issue or a problem you need to address. Period. So don't be hoodwinked with text messaging to click on anything. Krista? Okay, this question's from Bruce in California. We are trustees for a friend's estate. The beneficiary has a substance abuse problem and a criminal history and is currently in jail. How the estate is distributed was left up to us. Obviously, we don't want to hand over the entire amount to him at once. We need a safe place to put the money, a structured payout, and if he should pass away, a way to pass the remainder on to the secondary charity beneficiaries. Can you suggest something? Okay, first of all, Bruce, I'm really sorry you lost your friend. Your friend gave you this as a responsibility. and uh, That's happened to you before. Yes, it has happened to me before. And it is a hard one to navigate. So your instincts are completely right. What's really important, this person who has had a bad history is incarcerated right now. Uh, know that people can change over time. And this individual can end up okay. You know, starts with drugs and moved on. And maybe this individual will get clean and will have a productive life eventually. So you could do, you talked about a structured payout. That's typically where you buy an annuity of some kind that would typically an immediate payout annuity that would pay an allowance for as long as this individual lived. Usually with those, the benefit is based on, although there are varieties, the most common is it's based on the individual's expected lifespan, and there's an amount of money that's paid routinely. But there's another way to do this, and it's for you to go to typically one of the discount brokers. They have accounts where you can hire them to manage the money, very low fees, And then they will pay an allowance, a monthly allowance. And that way, money is preserved. The allowance can be reduced, increased, whatever, depending on the circumstances with this individual. I prefer that as an option to the annuity first because of the costs embedded in an annuity. And then once you buy the contract, the inflexibility built into it. If you do form a managed payout, 
with one of the discount brokers, then the fees are going to be much lower and there's much more flexibility that you have over the money after you commit it to changing how the money is handled and how it's paid out over the remaining lifetime of the beneficiary. And I hope for the beneficiary that this individual is able to straighten out his or her life and able to beat drugs. Yeah. And money could be a blessing because it's so hard to get employment and everything after being in jail for so many people. And You know what's weird? This is the only time in my lifetime that employers have been more flexible, more flexible and open to hiring people who have a prior criminal history yeah. because of the labor shortages in the United States. This is from Chase in New Mexico. I have three areas of spending that I am not getting good cash back. These are Costco, Lowe's, and restaurants. Any suggestions on a credit card or rewards program that can help me save in these areas? So Chase, Chase, Chase Bank's not involved here. Citibank (laughs) is. Because the Citibank Visa card you get for free as a Costco member gets you 2% cash back at Costco. Gets you 3% cash back at restaurants, 3% cash back on travel, and 4% cash back on this thing some people use for automobiles. Gasoline. Gasoline. Thank you. That's what it's called. Electric vehicle snob. What can I say? So that'll really help with those places. For Lowe's and others, I love the 2% cash back cards. And we have a comprehensive list based on type of transactions, what reward cards are best on Clark.com. It just says the best reward credit cards to apply for right now. And so you can see what would tend to work best for your spending patterns. But I can tell you without looking at the list, the Citibank Costco Visa card needs to be in your wallet for that 2% cash back at Costco. This is from Bill in Georgia. Why is the most important piece of information on a tire, the maximum pressure, always in the smallest size typeface on the sidewall? So Bill, the tire thing is crazy. I mean, try looking at a tire to see what the size is alone. That's the biggest thing they put. And the tire pressure, okay, so I have to do something that more and more people do. I take my smartphone and I zoom out, you know, to 10 X and then I take a picture of the tire of the numbers on a tire. And then I can read them. I mean, who should have to do that? Now, if the tires are the OEMs, the ones you got when you got your car, you can open up the car SUV, whatever truck, and there'll be a metal plate there inside the driver door that will tell you the proper inflation front and back for those tires. Did you know that? I did not know that. You did not know that. I want you to look when you get in your car next time. So we were talking about proper ways to hand out money. How about proper ways to give money to someone else that don't bring the tax man into your life? We're going to talk about that straight ahead. So there are families where there are situations, you got somebody who's typically older, 
They've done well financially. They want to help younger family members. Could be a younger sibling, could be their kids, could be they want to help their grandkids. The tax code is amazingly friendly for family helping family, even friends helping friends. You may have heard me say any individual is allowed to give $16,000 in a year to any other individual and to have surplus money lying around and you want to help somebody else, you can give them the money, no tax consequences to the giver, no tax consequences to the recipient. You don't have to make it 16000 It doesn't mean 16000 is the cap. But let's say you're a married couple and you want to help a kid who's trying to pay a down payment on a house. You can each give your child sixteen grand for that, 32000 all at once. If they're married, you can give their spouse 16000 each. Suddenly, there's $64,000, one generation transferred to another, tax-free. Another scenario I've been asked about a lot over the last few years, but I've only answered it in spot ways, is where, let's say you got money sitting there earning like basically nothing, and you trust that a family member is going to meet their obligations if you are the bank of mom and dad or whatever it is, and you lend money to your kid for something that's well beyond what this 16,000 is. The IRS has thought about this and you can't just say, wink and nod, I'm going to lend you money at half a percent, go have fun, go buy that house. I'm lending you the money for it. You don't need the mortgage company. You have the mortgage company and mom and dad and charge whatever. The IRS actually sets what the interest rates have to be, and they're incredibly low. I mean, amazingly low. Even with how interest rates have risen lately, they're still really low. Typically, the IRS rates for various lengths of time are about half what the prevailing interest rate is in the market for that type of loan. Like a typical mortgage loan today, the IRS would require a family member to charge another family member, it could be a friend, whatever, somewhere around 3%. It's really easy to find online for different lengths of loans what it is you have to charge. Now, here's the hard part, though. You lend money to a kid as the mortgage company, essentially, for a home, What if they don't pay? What if your kid slacks on paying? You're going to foreclose on your kid? If it's money you need to live on, you can't take that risk. You cannot take that risk. It's the same thing I talk about with co-signing a loan for somebody else. If they don't pay, can you deal with the consequences of having to pay that loan yourself? If the answer is no, you can't do that cosign and doing a loan where you help a friend or family member out of a rough spot or you help ease a path for them like for home ownership where mortgage is now five percent more or less and you're willing to take three which may be more than you're earning wherever you have that money parked right now so you could make more and you're helping them but suddenly you don't have fdic standing behind that money 
you're hoping that the person you love will make that payment to you. And so you got to really think through, if they don't, what are you going to do? There are going to be normal, logical consequences for that. And that's a question you can answer, I can't answer for you. But again, if you could not afford to lose that money, you cannot afford to do a bank of mom and dad or whatever it would be loan. But just know, make sure that you're charging exactly what the IRS requires if you're green light on all these things. And the IRS, you just search IRS required interest rates for family loans. That'll work. And you'll see the current interest rates, which are going to freak you out how low they are. And you can do it and should do it like a traditional mortgage where you have a real estate closing attorney draw up proper papers. It is a properly, uh, so it's typically deed to secure debt mortgage. You have that done so that the interest is deductible potentially for your kid or family member just to make sure everything is done right as it should be done and the documents drawn up as they are. If you don't want to be involved with having to call whoever it is you lent money to, to, hey, you know, you haven't paid your payment for this month yet. You want to not be involved in that. Believe it or not, there's enough of these family-friend loans done in the country. that There are various organizations that will handle the paperwork, the billing, and the collections if a payment's not made for you so that you're one step removed. The fees are not high. Krista? Okay, uh, this first question is from CJ in Alaska. Last year, my 18-year-old daughter opened a Roth account thanks to your constant harping on the subject. This year, she won't have saved up enough from her job to deposit any into her Roth. Since we live in the great state of Alaska, my daughter has received a PFD, and I've invested it for her in a custodial trust account at Schwab. Would you explain a PFD? Permanent fund dividend. Yeah, so Alaska, because of the Alaska pipeline and all the oil exploration and a very small population... There's money that's distributed to residents of Alaska each year based on the profitability of the oil trade or lack thereof. The money goes up and down. And so it's kind of like a universal basic income that's paid to Alaskans. And so it's one of the enticements to live in Alaska. So hers is invested in a custodial account. There's roughly $50,000 in the account, and this account hurts her when it comes to FAFSA accounting. I was thinking of taking out some of the money in the trust account and putting it into her Roth. Is this a good idea or no? This is a fantastic idea. Now, you can only do it, CJ, up to the amount that your daughter earned in the year, and that would be how much can go in there. You got to make sure you don't exceed the earnings or no more, obviously, than $6,000. And from Holly in Arizona, my husband passed away suddenly in December. Sorry. Sorry, Holly. We have a leased car, and I'm wondering, since I like it, but the payment is high, should I try to finance it as a buy rather than continue with the lease payments? It's a fairly rare car and worth far more than what my buyout is. So, Holly, I don't know if your intention is to make the spread, buying out the lease, and then selling it to another individual. I mean, that's how you'd make money. Or if you want to continue to own the vehicle, if you continue to own the vehicle, 
you have a high payment on the lease, you potentially would have a higher payment on a loan buying it out. But regardless, at some point, particularly if you did it now, you'd want to buy that vehicle because you're buying it, at least in today's conditions, far below what it's worth in the marketplace now. If money is tight, though, you would execute the purchase, buy the vehicle, and turn around and sell it and make that spread and buy something at that point that's more affordable for you. And again, I wish you the best having lost your husband recently. Yes. Um, This question is from Steve in Arkansas. He says, hey, Clark, people who get on waiting lists and have agreed to a price, after sometimes six months, they take delivery when the car arrives. But then the vehicle has depreciated six months and new year models are around the corner. Is it smart to get on a wait list? So if you go on the wait list, you don't have to buy the vehicle. The wait lists have been quite long. If you're buying the vehicle, Steve, at or around MSRP, Manufacturer Suggested Retail Price, since new vehicles have been so inflated in price, if you can buy it after that wait around MSRP, I say go ahead and buy it. Don't worry about the fact that you're buying late in the 22 model year when the 23s are already starting to appear. I wouldn't fret about that. On the other hand, if you're having to pay substantially above MSRP, then you got a double wound to your wallet here, buying what will instantly be a one-year-old model and paying above, substantially above, suggested retail. That would be a case where it would be better to pass on it with one exception. If you're somebody who keeps a vehicle an ultra-long time, the difference between something being marked as a 22 model year or 23 becomes insignificant to meaningless when that vehicle has enough age on it. What's ultra long? Ultra long would be eight years or longer. Thank you for asking that follow-up. So if your ownership cycle tends to be less than eight years of a vehicle, and particularly less than five, then that model year difference plus paying above manufacturers suggested would really put a hurt on your wallet. And the vehicle market is gradually getting better. I know car dealers listening are rolling their eyes like, what does Clark know we don't know or does he know nothing? The reality is the car market is slowly healing and the inflated prices we have on used vehicles, the inflated prices we have on new vehicles are moderating and we will get back to a normalized market almost certainly sometime in 23. So I had said before, it would be the second half of 22. I was too optimistic. I was wrong. I was Pollyanna, but it is going to be in 23. And if I'm wrong, I'll eat a car live on podcast. No, I won't. (laughs) (laughs) I scared you right there, didn't I? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to tell you that I absolutely love the feedback that we get from you about our podcast, the goods, the bads, the uglies, me eating sheet metal, that would be an ugly. (laughs) And I hope today's episode was fun for you. Remember, 
We have money-saving advice you can trust at Clark.com. And deals you can trust through and through at ClarkDeals.com. No one pays us to say, ooh, this is a deal. The deals we list for you on Clark Deals are listed because we believe they are bona fide real deals that'll save you money. Have a great day.